Welcome to It's a Slate of Mind with Allison Hazelden. This is the entertainment industry's video podcast, where we spark honest, unfiltered conversations within the community about things we're all thinking about, but don't talk about enough. I invite you to join my circle of friends, both new and old, as we tackle the industry together. Hey guys, Allison Hazelden here, host of It's a Slate of Mind. I'm so happy that you're listening in today. This is one of my favorite episodes we have ever recorded, so get ready. So I have to give a little shout out. Uh, We recently had our first ever live and in-person recording event, and I got to say, I am just completely overwhelmed by the outpouring of love and support and knowledge and fun that we had at that event. It was an absolutely wonderful night, and we just had an incredible time learning from both of our guests and networking with each other. You know, for me personally, it was really incredible to finally get to meet some listeners in person for the very first time. Um, So I do want to give a big shout out to specifically Adrian and Erica. Um, You guys are so wonderful, and I I truly appreciate the kind words uh, and the support. And thank you all who um, who came out to the actual event. If you missed it this time, you got to stick around for the next one because it was truly an incredible night. So this week, we are sticking to that theme of encouragement and support with our weekly challenge. This week's challenge is write yourself a pep talk note, then write one for a friend. So the truth of the matter is, is that we could all use a pep talk every once in a while. This industry is hard, fam. We get rejected daily. Our our expectations are rarely ever met. And, you know, sometimes people can just be straight up negative and mean and try to bring you down. But you are your own biggest cheerleader. And if you aren't yet, you should get on it because chances are you're pretty amazing. So I think that we should all write ourselves a letter of encouragement that we can reflect on during those really hard days. List all the progress that you're proud of, the qualities about yourself that you love, and all the reasons why you are so committed to continuing to create. Then write a pep talk note for a friend who you think could really use it. I think it's so important that we spread the love and lift each other up because it is contagious. And the more that one of us is succeeding, the more the rest of us will succeed too. So I will say, you know, I'm not unrealistic. These notes can't solve all of our problems, but they can serve as tiny little sparks to help get our mindset back on track and give us the motivation that we need to keep going. I hope you guys know that you are so loved, you are worthy, and you are capable of achieving big things. Okay, now the moment you've all been waiting for, we have the incomparable Rick Wrights as our guest this week. Rick has had a successful 30-year career as an actor, writer, and director. He's a former SAG president, current SAG board member, and as you'll soon learn, a significant figure in the charge that led to Georgia becoming the incredible center for film and TV that it is today. He is just as kind as he is successful, and his message today is truly inspiring for creators of all kinds. We cover the many things you didn't know about how Atlanta became a giant in the entertainment industry, Rick's advice to actors in the Southeast, what he hopes our market will become, and the many valuable lessons he's learned from a lifetime in the business. So get your notebooks out because you don't want to miss a single word of this episode. Okay, well, um, not unlike the rest of you that are in the audience tonight, um, there are a million ways to get to the dream. And mine started in uh, Rochester, New York, where I was born and raised. Went to college at Bowling Green, Ohio, if anyone's heard of Bowling Green State University. No Falcon cheers, okay? Nobody knows. Uh, They are the Falcons, so I went from one Falcon team to another Falcon team here in Atlanta. but growing up and graduating from Bowling Green State University there, I went to New York, started my uh, career on stage. As a matter of fact, first 10 years of my career were largely spent on stage. And uh, I'm really old. And so this was probably before television was invented and filmed. Oh, yeah, as, sure. As I was mm-hmm. making my transition. Um, but I graduated from high school just to give you perspective. Okay, you can do the math on your own. Graduated <laughs> high school in 73, college in 77. That's right. I'm 103. So, but still looking amazing. Thank you. Thank you for that. 
please tell my agent. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I went to New York and uh, hit the boards and, and worked there for a long, long time. And then uh, the West Coast, Los Angeles for a number of years, went back to New York where I met my future wife, who was then quickly transferred to Atlanta. So I found myself in Atlanta, Georgia in the early 80s. And I didn't know anything about it. As it turned out, we were right on the leading edge of a dynamic change in film, television, and other work for artists. And I happened to be there when it was all happening. And it was serendipitous for a lot of uh, wonderful reasons. And I hadn't had a lot of training in film and television. And I was able to learn sort of, you know how they send singers to Europe to mm -hmm. tour in the old days and they yeah. learn their craft before you open them up for the label and to the rest of the world. Um, but you could disappear into the American South back then and sort of cut your teeth, hone your chops and find your niche. And nobody knew who you were. It was easy to fail, but not lose. And so that was a great advantage. Um, you know, we did a lot of uh, corporate industrial films, educational films. Uh, the category at Screen Actors Guild is uh, co-ed, uh, corporate educational films. But that was our bread and butter. We did a lot of radio. We did a lot of voiceover for television commercials. Um, we did all kinds of things. And when you, what you learned early by having to be here was to be versatile, mm. to have a career. We may, we may dream of being a film star, a television star, a thespian on the stage. But at some point, you, you know, life sort of pushes you gently or not in a certain direction. But here you are allowed to do a lot of things. So jack of all trades was good. And so versatility, I still encourage people to this very day, that if you're starting the business, do everything. Fail at everything. It's, it's okay. Uh, and I'll tell you the thing that I learned from my, my uh, a drama teacher in college. The very first thing they said, you know, in Drama 101, the teacher came in who had had some credits in the New York stage and everything and said, I'm going to tell all of you to quit today. And if you ignore what I say, and you want to make this a career, you're welcome to stay. Otherwise, leave now. Hmm. And everybody stayed. And we knew that was the beginning of the climb. So everything becomes part of the process. And the process is a good thing. You start to learn that the art of acting, the art of being in this business and surviving in this business is finding little triumphs along the way. You lose a lot, you win a little. That little flower at the end of the path is the thing that keeps you going. We call it hope. Disney never made a movie that Walt Disney said, you don't have a movie unless you have hope at the end. And they made a fortune selling hope. Mm. So what I want most out of this evening for all of you is to be hopeful for your careers. As dire as th things may seem, you could be exploding. There could be people here that are having a really good time and experience and getting a lot of work. Others are struggling. It's okay. Do not measure yourself by someone else's success. Your journey is your journey. Your time is your time. You will evolve and develop whatever it is that you have to give the world by simply growing up and being in it. Don't waste your time, your entire time, focusing on the goal because the process is really the art. The awards and the galas and the glamour, that's all frosting on the cake. That's not why I do it. I don't know why you do it. You can have any, any number of reasons why you want to pursue this career. But the point is, is learn to love the process. Learn to do the work. You've seen it. From little kids to adults, the ones that never have to be kick-started. They're up first. They're there first. They're working hardest first. It's like a little league baseball player. Who's the one that showed up first? Who's the one that stayed last? Same thing in our business. Those are the ones that go on to be successful. And that's in anything in life, but in particular for what we do here. I feel like I just listened to a whole sermon. And we're done. Thank you for being here. We're good. Thank you. Um, <laughs> we have all the answers now. Um, so what I, I want to dig back into really quick when we were, we were talking about versatility mm -hmm. and what did that look like for you in back in the 80s, 90s kind of region of time? What okay. did that look like? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, when I when I started out, of course, this is the one job where you always have to have another job. Mm -hmm. Am I right? This career? <laughs> because 
And the reason I say that is you want to take desperation out of the equation. You're imminently more successful when you take that, when you walk in the room, a director, a casting director, they can smell desperation. They know when you're floundering. And so you want to take that away. So you always have to have another job so you can survive. That's the paying your dues part. Oh, you got to pay your dues. Paying your dues is surviving. The rest of it is what we love to do. So for me, the versatility came first with me being on stage. And I did a lot of musical theater, uh, not only in the Midwest, but in New York, because that's where I eventually moved. I lived on the Upper West Side uh, on a three-story walk-up for years. <laughs> and for entertainment one morning, I watched the building across the street burn down while I <laughs> ate cereal. So that was a fun day. Wow. Uh, and uh, otherwise, I used to use my street when it wasn't on fire. Uh, I would use my street because it was a great echo chamber. And I'd have to uh, audition a block away. I was at 75th and Broadway. And so okay. one block away was the Ansonia Hotel, which in the late 70s, early 80s, was the cultural center for rehearsals, auditions, mm. things like that. It's moved down 8th Avenue now mm -hmm. for those who are from New York or have been to New York. So we have some New Yorkers in here. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know all the area. It's just south of Times Square. And there's this one great um, audition space there. But it used to be the Ansonia Hotel. It was a block away. So I would warm up for the musicals by walking up and down the street before it was my time. And I'd go one block and I'd go upstairs and I would sing. And when you live in a neighborhood in New York long enough, you get to know everybody. It's a culture, it's a neighborhood, it's, it's your people. And they would always ask, what are you auditioning for? What are you singing? It was better than a shower because you had an audience and so you could shake the nerves by singing in the street. It was no different than being a street performer, essentially. And, and I love New York for that energy and the give and take of all that. And I was sitting in a Starbucks not too long ago when I was getting ready to audition for a TV show there. Uh, and this little boy from the Midwest plopped down next to me, 11 years old, and he just burst into song, sitting next to me at a Starbucks. And I went, so what are you reading for? <laughs> and, and he laughed and his mother laughed and he went off and he was doing a Christmas show or something of that nature just up the street. Mm. So I had to learn to do um, legit plays, musical theater, um, that became, I did a lot of, I, I used to sing telegrams. Uh, I used to work in Friday's restaurant in New York where I was a singing waiter uh, to make extra money. Yeah. I was the only person who would sing to the tables. And there was another guy by the name of Rick who worked at the same restaurant. And we used to do a, a little thing called putting on the Ricks. <laughs> and for an extra 20 bucks, we'd come to your table. And we would sing to make extra tips for them and us. And you go, this is working for me. And we had a blast. So. Versatility meant exposing yourself to as much as I could. I got opportunities then to do um, some television commercials. I didn't know much about it. I wasn't very good at it, certainly, because I hadn't been trained. And because I, I focused everything on stage. And that's when I began to understand it was another technique. And about that same time, I moved out to L.A. for a short... I was almost on the white shadow on television. And I was brought out there to be tested and the whole thing. But I just wasn't ready. Mm. I didn't know the craft. So back to New York, I went with my tail tucked between my legs and said, i got to figure out this thing called TV and film. So I began to study, uh, much like you're doing here at Drama Inc. And it takes a while. It takes a while to find the comfort zone. So versatility for me kept keep exposing yourself, even if you're failing once again. Expose yourself to other elements of entertainment. Um, take a corporate edge out. Oh, you don't want to do those. You go, well, you know what? The technique of shooting a corporate film is no different than shooting a regular film if you've got a good crew. I'm, I'm going to learn how to do this. So you got the art of hitting your mark. you got the art of listening. you got the art of transitioning for scenes and things of that nature. Where to look, where to walk, how to walk, and how loud to be. Instead of being big for the stage, I had to be small. And that was, that was a total different trick. And so over that time, I learned how to play that game. And about that time, my wife was brought to Atlanta and I followed her. And I started working a little more harder because it was harder to get stage work here. Mm -hmm. So I had to focus more on TV. And uh, then it turned out movies and television, long before there were incentives, in the middle 80s, from about 1985 to about 1996 when the Olympics were here, uh, that meant a lot of movies of the week. We called it Disease of the Week. 
Back okay. in, you know, somebody was dying. Somebody was something. Now it's just called Lifetime Television. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I'm kidding. I love Lifetime. If anyone's listening from Lifetime. I really do. No, it, and it was fun because then we got to do bad television movies of the week. But it didn't matter. Because we got day player gigs. We got what we call five lines and under, five and unders. Mm-hmm. Uh, one-liners and things like that. But you got on a set. I remember being on my first set as an extra just to see what it was about. And I recommend that everybody be an extra once and then never again. <laughs> if you want to be a legitimate actor, you want to be treated like an actor and not like an extra. And I don't mean that to demean people who do background work. I mean, it's all very, very noble. But this is the art of acting, and it's a skill set. So you have to de- develop that skill. But being on a set, you get to see how other people do it. And even if they did it badly, and it was a bad movie, it was a bad situation, there's something to learn from that. Because I'd come home from work and go, I'm sure, certainly not going to do that when I'm on camera. Right. And that was a great way to learn. Sure. You saw from bad actors what not to do. Yeah. And then I'd get it in edit bays with other producers and go, hey, come and take a look at this. And if you want to know how directors and producers really feel about you, go into a post-edit session. And they will tell you who sucks. And they won't mince words. It is like a group of sailors just settled into a small room and decided to have a swearing fest because they will tell you this person will never work again. This no good. And I won't Mm -hmm. finish the sentence, but that's what they used to do because the people wouldn't know their continuity. They wouldn't match. They didn't over a 12 hour period of time, they had lost their energy. And so the energy didn't match. It wasn't just physical action. It was their emotion. And so you began to realize that a day of shooting on a 12-hour shoot day was a marathon, and you got personal explosions of time, like 30 minutes, an hour, to actually do your craft, and the rest of the time you spend waiting. That's why they have second team, people to stand in for you, so you're not exhausted by the time it's your turn. But then there's a trick to waiting for your turn and not losing your focus. And it's very easy for a novice to be distracted into not being ready. I see that a lot on sets now. They're so into being social and I'm on a set and I'm at craft services and I'm getting free food. And networking. And it, yeah, and isn't this yeah. fun? And here's my card and hey, let's text. I'm still the only person who does not take my cell phone on a set. I don't. I'm, I'm serious. Well, good. Good for you. Yeah. I'm, I'm serious. There is not a set I go on. Today, stars, beginners, it doesn't matter. They all have their cell phones. Mm. And when they're called... Do you just leave yours in your trailer? I leave it yeah. in my trailer. And I may sit on the set for six, eight hours and not go back and look at it. I'll look at lunch. Sure. For like, transition. There's, there's, I mean, there's, yeah, I mean, there's, there's breaks between them when you can check it out. But Yeah, I mean, depending on how far distant right, you are from right. base camp and where you actually set yeah. the phone. But don't, don't get caught into the whole social milieu where you find yourself focused on all the wrong things. You're there to act today. And you're there to draw upon what it is that you've created and memorized and prepared yourself for. Don't take yourself yourself out of the game. Others will try to take you out of the game. Um, That's another psychological game that I've seen happen. But this is your time and it's your moment, even if it's one line Mm -hmm. or five lines, or it may be a great scene for you. You just don't know. Sometimes you you can find a pot of gold in a short page and a half that you didn't know was there and no one else minded but you. And then people notice. They notice when you hit your marks. They notice when you're memorized, when you're off book. Um, I'm working right now in a picture, been working for two weeks. And when the script supervisor walks up and goes, I don't even have to talk to you. You are always on. You are always in the right spot. You always remember what you did in the, in the master. Mm-hmm. I never have to talk to you. Right. And you go, great. I hope we never talk again. <laughs> but that's part of the thing that gets you back. Yep. The thing that gets you hired more is your demeanor on a set than your performance and how you comport yourself as a professional. You're confident without being cocky. You're ready at a moment's notice. You're flexible. You're ready to be molded. Allow yourself, even in your mind after you've practiced it and practiced it, to find something fresh, a fresh beat. Here's something I didn't have before, possibly in the master, it's now six hours later and it's turned around on you and it's a single and something clicks. Don't be afraid to try that because you're inside your single. 
So matching, while it's still key, this is your time to shine. Jack Lemon used to call it showtime. Because the money time yeah. is your close-up. Every time. <laughs> the rest of the time, you're staying out of the way of the furniture and bumping into the stars. And a lot of times, I want to make a demo reel where they shoot over my shoulder to the star. <laughs> and just do a whole demo reel where you never see my face. <laughs> but only the stars. And I know you'll ever, we all go through those phases. But at a certain point, the camera is going to come around on you. And it's up to you to make that magical without looking like you're stealing it, mm. trying to steal and one-up everybody else. And there are ways to do that. And that comes through practice and training. Absolutely. So let's transition a little bit um, from, you know, now we have, the, we have the context. You have been in this market from the very beginning. And, and one of the things, I'm going to ask you to brag on yourself a little bit because I don't think people realize what a huge part of making our Atlanta industry, what it is today that you, that you have played. So just for a few facts here, um, in case you guys don't know. So our tax credits here in 2009 were at 89 million. In 2017, they were 800 million. Um, and direct spending from those productions in the following year were 2.7 billion. So we have grown a lot. And yes, I would have. love if you could share um, with everyone kind of how all that came to be, how we got here, how we established ourselves into the powerhouse that Atlanta truly is today. Okay. Cool. And and feel free to okay. brag on yourself. Otherwise, I'll I, be forced I, I, to. I won't do that. I'll let you do that. <laughs> the important thing is, let's call it pre-tax credit, post-tax credit. There was a dynamic production community here, like I said, leading up to the Olympics when incentives were not a big part of the equation, but something magical was happening in Georgia. And I use that as a preface for this reason. So that when we came back with tax credits and we were struggling like everyone else was for the, from 96 to 2005, 2006, is you put it all in perspective by, by saying, we didn't have it then, but what did we need now? And this giant gap happened where we went, all this was supposed to happen as a result of the Olympics and our growth. Where did it go? And there was a group of people that got together called the Georgia Production Partnership. Anybody heard of the GPP here? Okay. If you're not a member, I encourage you to be a member. By no means do you have to be a member, but it's a great way to stay active. Even if you can't get into the depth of wanting to advocate for the industry with a lobbyist and working at the Capitol, your money there goes towards that effort even in a very small way, which when you add it up with several hundred or a thousand people can be very dynamic. So at any rate, enter Georgia Production Partnership in 1995, just as a social club, just as a group of people, interested artists going, hey, what's the next phase for Georgia? We did not know in 1995 and 96 that the bottom was gonna fall out. And it did, and we couldn't explain it. So we started to formalize our meetings more and more and more. And by 1998, we incorporated a group. There were probably not 50 of us at that time. And when we originally met, there were not 10 of us. So smaller than the capacity of this room. And we started to go, what happened? So we started doing some research. And I was by accident there. I was not certainly not trained for such things. You know, but when you, when you make enough noise, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. And the person who makes the most noise is the one who now is in charge of that committee. I was that guy. I was the guy who go, well, what if we did something like that? So he went, that's great. You're in charge. And I didn't know the first thing about it. I'll be honest with you. I was incredibly naive about the political process, how things worked at the Capitol. But over a period of time, you learn when you invest, just like we do in acting. I invested myself in, in that practice on the side. And so we discovered that the business had traveled north to Canada, as far west as New Zealand and Australia. Remember Lord of the Rings and all that stuff was all kind of happening at that time. And then there was the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe. And suddenly that opened up those territories for what people were beginning to describe as efficient production, low cost production. These were troubled economies that needed an infusion of cash. And so people were willing to work for very little to do what other people did for a lot of money in Los Angeles and New York and wherever it happened to be. 
And so we noticed when it went to Canada, and one of the reasons it went to Canada, Canada and part of the British realm, the UK, all elements of the UK, and most of the territories I've described had influences of the British colonial times, but they're well invested into the arts and they underwrite the arts with grants and other things, whereas the United States does a really poor job of that. We don't support our artist community. The budget of Berlin, Germany, their annual budget for the arts is greater than the entire United States as far as contributing government money to the arts. One city, Berlin, bigger. Same in London. Turned out it was then Toronto and Vancouver. And then the entire uh, country of Canada said, we want to invest in this sort of element. And another favorable thing, so they started offering tax credits or grants, reductions of scale of cost in Canada. But it fell at a time when the disparity of currency exchange fell to the favor of Americans versus Canadians. The disparity was about 30 cents on the dollar at the time. And this would have been middle 90s through 2005. That's something none of us can control. But suddenly they have a 30% discount on top of their other 10, 15% discount. And suddenly, if you took the average, they were 40% plus or minus a discounted cost over all the production in the United States. And, and our research showed that that's where it went and why it went there. And that, oh, we can't control that. How do we, how do we bring people back? Um, there was lobbying at the United States Capitol, um, not so much here in Georgia yet at that time. And then we started to see many explosions as the disparity shrunk, as the Canadian exchange to American dollars shrunk. It started to open, it became 20%, then 15%. And people said to California and New York and saying, if we could get that margin under 10%, would you consider shooting in the United States again? And they went, yes, we would rather be in the United States. But great. So if theirs came down X, we just have to make up the difference. What if we give a 15% tax credit in states? Now, Georgia didn't do it. New Mexico and Louisiana did it first. And so that happened in 2002. So now look at all the years that have transpired between 96 and 2002 where we kind of everything went fallow everywhere across the states. And we were curious about how well it would do, Georgia being uber conservative. Uh, we're not going to be quick to jump into the game politically, but we watched to see if it would work, and it did. It moved the needle. The disparity shrunk again. Then it shrunk again. Before we knew it, we were in play, and we were, we were at par with these other production uh, countries. And we, so we went, as Georgians, how do we do this? I'm here to tell you, we didn't know. I didn't know. And I was in charge of the committee. So more research trips to the Capitol, spending as many as my, the 40 days that they were active there and watching. We eventually raised enough capital to hire our first lobbyist. And by 2004, we had a lobbyist. And we had enough members at GPP to underwrite the lobbyist to do our work. And believe it or not, we had our first bill introduced in uh, winter, spring of 2004, we lost. Mm. A lot of people go, George, it's just exploded on the scene and took this tax credit and ran with it. No, we did the first time and we lost. We lost. And we put our heads between our legs. It was a, he was a freshman governor at the time, Sonny Perdue. We didn't know what to do. He liked the film industry, even as a Republican. And, you know, you don't want to put an R and a D next to any of these names because the industry should be able to survive on its own. But historically, the Republicans were more reluctant to want to um, support our community. So we had to get to him in another sense. And he liked the business, but it didn't make business sense. And we got into a meeting with him in the ceremonial office. You'll see the ceremonial office where all the pictures are taken. That's not his office. His office is downstairs. But we're up in the ceremonial office, and he's chatting about this. And he goes, well, I'd like to do something. And he says, I confess I don't know much about your business but I don't spend a dollar to make 98 cents. You got me? I'm a businessman from middle Georgia is what he said. I do not, I have a fiduciary responsibility to the citizens of Georgia, the taxpayers. I do not spend a dollar to make 98 cents. Make me a dollar and it's yours. And we went, great. How do we do that? <laughs> we didn't know. So we started investing ourselves into economic principles, 
forecast engines, um, talking with PhDs in economics from all the Georgia universities that we could talk to, if we could get on their calendar and walk us through and walk us through the process, walk us through how you project. Well, you're not a PhD, you couldn't possibly understand. And I said, I'm very linear and numbers are simply numbers. Walk me through it. And that was my great advantage. Out of everyone else on the team, my brain works analytically and in a linear fashion. And, if, and I'm very good at taking the big picture and putting pieces together. So much so that I wrote the introduction of the F-22 Raptor for Lockheed Martin worldwide, which was, <laughs> and I don't fly a plane and I'm not a pilot. What don't you do, Rick? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Simply, they put me in a room, they did a background check, Department of Defense, and went, here are the books, read the manuals, you can't take them out of the room. Write the introduction video. And finally, I, got, I went through all the manuals and spent my couple of weeks there, and there were no windows, there were no anything oh like that. God. I was pale and pasty. I was all the things that a government worker ought to be. <laughs> so, you know, I was playing my role. And finally, I said, would you mind if I flew your simulator? And they went, you're not a pilot. And I go, I read the manual. <laughs> and they went, what? And I said, yeah, I promise I won't crash it. And I got in there. And it's a head-up display, and everything cycles through your fingers just like a video game. And it's all there, and it's all linear. You can't jump from A to Z. To get to Z, you have to go through B, D, E, F, the whole thing. And I went, I got this, and I flew their simulator. So this is what you're talking about with the versatility thing? The versatility yep. thing is using, using elements of what you have. But the whole thing is that was the background that allowed me to say, give me an economic formula, and I'll put it together. And when he was done explaining it, Mr. PhD from Georgia State University, I went, I got it. But you're missing this, 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 and this, and this in your formula. And he went, what? I said, yeah, this is not, um, this is not a good view of the world because you've left out things. You don't understand the business now. Now I'm going to teach you about our business. What you do is economics. What I do is entertainment. Here's what we do. And that's when we began to fashion our way through it. And so that's how I became the leader of the team. And there was a range of 9% to 15% if the moon and the stars and everything aligned just right. And, but the average is about 11%. And we were in play until everyone jumped from 15% to 25% and 30%. And I went, damn it. Oh, just damn. And so we were out of play. We got our bill in 2005. By 2006, we might as, not, might not, might as well have not had a bill. Mm. And back to the drawing board, we went. How, did, how, how are you guys feeling at that point? Were you, were, oh. Did you guys take a hit in that motivation, or, or were you still just doggedly going after it? Well, it's hard to lose. I mean, you invest your time, and it's, it's a lot of time, and it's, and it's hard to recover, but you try to keep your eye on the prize. And so in 2007 and 8, we came back, um, and this time the plan expanded. And this time, we, despite all the formula formulaic changes and manipulations we tried to do, we couldn't quite give away 30% and make 30%. And so we came up with our branding and marketing initiative, your marketing person, which was to accelerate the brand of the state of Georgia and send it globally on the backs of the industry. Because they said, why should we give money to the entertainment industry? And I said, because they have more money than we have and I want some of it. <laughs> and you should want some of it. I'm serious. It was as simple as they have money in a recession. Now it's 2008 and we're a kickstart. We have no infrastructure growth that we need. Just add actors and we're ready to go. And they went, okay, we'll throw a dart at that. And, and it worked and we exploded. We exploded off the map. And, and the marketing aspect was to put our logo on everything. It was a big deal to put our logo on it because the state budget for marketing was about $23 million for all goods and services at that time. And I said, what if you could have $100 million to half a billion dollar ad campaign globally? Would you do it? And they said, we couldn't afford it. And I go, you don't have to because here's the brilliance of the entertainment industry. They will penetrate 222 civilized nations globally like the Olympics and Coca-Cola and the United Nations. And you won't spend an extra time. They're going to put it embedded in their film in perpetuity. Go, and that logo is is a is the little Georgia peach that you guys see at right. the end of everything. The Georgia peach existed. I'm not going to take credit for that, but we evolved it into a motion logo with color, 
and three dimensions and and then a thousand different permutations and combinations that you had to use for all the various media around the world and different signs of screen ratios um, types you know remember there was ntsc and then there was other types of the different file types and the different exactly right and so we had to, we had to do we had to do all that stuff but as we were doing it all i said you're not going to have to spend the money all you're going to do is waive taxes as first generation on people that you're going to employ and then the system will pay it back over time and your logo your brand will go worldwide and that will make up the difference in kind as to the disparity between actual um, tax recollection versus giving away we're going to redo that and it has worked and and then we have what we call direct indirect and induced effects of uh, economics i know this gets to be kind of broad and deep but if I give you a dollar, you might give 50 cents to her because you're going to buy goods and services from her. Then she's going to pay somebody another 25 cents or 30 cents. And it keeps, so for every dollar spent, it moves down the line. It's respent into the economy. So when you talk about investing in economy, you want to invest in expanding economies. And that's what happened here. Not a hard concept. Not a lot of people got it at first, but it works. And so we argue about multiplier effects and all those other things, but it is nobody can deny that there is a downstream effect for every dollar spent and that we can argue about the multiples, but it does happen. And so things like investment in infrastructure, uh, Blackhall Studios is putting in over $100 million. EUE Screen Gems is going to invest over $100 million. Tyler Perry just invested $250 million. These are all intangibles that they didn't predict in their model that are evident in an expanded economy that made our system work. And so when they said, I'm losing money on you, and I said, you are not. You're not losing money. You're creating economy. And that is part of the energy of government. And that's what you're supposed to be doing. Sometimes you win. Sometimes you lose. You're not losing here. And that's what brought us to here today. So out of the group of people... The metaphor that I like to use, throw a pebble into still waters, and it creates a ripple effect. And those concentric circles, as they work out, everything begins with the catalyst or a nucleus, then it works out. Our group was small, but as our needs grew, the community grew with it, and the support of the community grew with it and with it and with it. And suddenly we were a force. We were an army. So it wasn't five people or ten people in a room. It was now thousands of people in the room whether they were actually physically there or not. And that meant voters. And that meant people eager, eager for futures. And now we can reach down to the young people and go, would you like to do this? I'm here to tell you probably the greatest thing that we'll create out of all of entertainment is a new industry that'll be spawned out of creatives that'll have nothing to do with entertainment at the end of the day. It'll be some kid who's designed something that'll be the next new business for the future. And you go, what? Yeah, I happened to be working in Georgia, and I was doing this thing on a film, and I had this idea. And then you have Microsoft. Then you have Apple. Then you have Google. Then you have Facebook. And that's where those people come from. You mix creative people. Good things happen. I don't care where they're from. And I'm here to tell you, in a diversity profile, our diverse profile is better here in this room, in this market, than it is in New York and L.A. when I attend meetings there. We've got it. We've got it here in spades. Mm -hmm. We've got great young people, great minds, great talented people. You just haven't had your time yet, but you will. You will. I love that. Um, so one quick question before we move forward. How is it for you balancing all of that work with your acting career? Because that was still, you were juggling both. It's, it was difficult. And I would say at the expense of my performance career, I've done a lot of this. And I did, by the way, as a volunteer. A lot of people think I made millions. And I said, if I made millions, would I be here? Um, you know, sitting here talking to you. Well, actually, I might. I'm that kind of person. But at the end of the day was it took away a lot. Mm. Even my last six to eight years as the Screen Actors Guild president uh, here locally, I ended up putting in 30, 40, 50 hours a week for free. I was doing the same for GPP. And when, it's, when you're in season at the Capitol... It's 40 working days for the Georgia legislature. But I'm here to tell you, it's four months of activity, three to four months of activity. We've got people here from the ACLU, and they know. 
they chart the calendar. And now I do. I actually do. Um, but then it's the preparation coming up to then. And then it's all the meetings in the summer. Believe it or not, a lot of things that are going to be dictated in the upcoming session, which begins in January, are being talked about right now. The new bills that are going to come out, the ones that we're going to have to fight as a community. And there are bills. You're going to hear more about that later on in a, in a conversation with Chris Bruce from the ACLU. They're doing important work that helps sustain our work. Also, lifestyle for all people above and beyond what we do as a living here. There are things that are cornerstones of civilization and the rights of individuals, and you have to pay attention. And sometimes you got to get your hands dirty and get in the fight. Mm. And you're going to give up time for that. I do not regret giving up my time to this marketplace and to folks like you because you're sitting here means that it worked. Yeah. And we're certainly so grateful to you for oh, that. Well, you're very welcome. Yeah. Um, so on that note, um, let's let's talk about you know this this past year has shook up a lot of people in our in our community um, just with the recent changes politically and things going on and I know for me this was my first year being a part of this community mm -hmm. so I wasn't super well versed as to our history and, and and the struggles that we had to face so all I knew was okay we're having some issues now politically that are threatening. Um, our stability as an industry. Um, I actually I took a quick little poll um, over the past couple of weeks, and I had 75% of people who responded to my poll said that they were concerned about the future of Atlanta film, and 67% said that they had been considering moving to other markets. Okay. And people people were scared. People have been scared. People um, have been concerned. And so I, I think we should kind of just break down from not necessarily a political perspective, but in terms of us as actors doing the work and, and looking at our careers moving forward um, regarding this issue this past year or just potential issues that could show up, what should our mindset be in terms of breaking down these threats and applying that to our own personal careers? Okay, first of all, there's always gonna be adversity. Even in the middle of the perfect storm where everything's going super well for all of us. There's always adversity. There's always somebody on the perimeter. There's always somebody who wants to take a pot shot and re reduce you to rubble. That is apparently the nature of man and humanity. So don't let that get to you. It is constant. That is a battle that never ends, ever. When you fight politically, when you fight for a career, it's about the long haul. And, and, but uh, let me say this to you. People are going to say the sky is falling. It's not. That's the encouraging news. Are there problems? Are there challenges? Absolutely. But we knew they were coming. People who are new to the market, people who are new to the business may not think that this is normal. This is the ebb and flow of culture and government. This is what, what happens. The same thing happens in California and New York. We just don't read about it with the same eyes. Um, there are vultures once again in those two cities, and I respect both of them. They have their place in history and culture. And it was never our goal to overtake them. Number one, because I think it would be impossible to defeat a hundred years of history in each case and try to supplant them as a powerhouse market in 10 to 20 years. It's really, really unfathomable, but we have made considerable progress, which makes them look at us very hard. Mm -hmm. um, the land of milk and honey, you're here. I would say this is still a market with the best opportunity space of anywhere in the world for entertainment. I'm going to give you a perspective. Um, because I was just out at the National SAG after a convention in Los Angeles, and I got the numbers fresh just from, from last weekend. There are 81,000 union actors in Los Angeles. There are 35,000 union actors in New York City. We have just shy of 2,500 here. And yet, we are the third largest produ producer of entertainment in the world, in the world. What kind of opportunity space does that create? It's a great space. Mm -hmm. This is a great place to start. It's a great place to stay. I've made my home here for 30 years and I have not suffered. There have been highs and there have been lows and I'm still here. That's the versatility part is when it's low, you find something else to do, something in the industry that makes you survive and not become desperate and you still work at your craft. Mm -hmm. And then the next opportunity comes. We are a gypsy business. 
by our nature. Wherever is home is not really your home. Wherever you're going to act is going to be your home. Even for six weeks, four weeks, three days, doesn't matter. Five years. We're always on the move. Be prepared for that. That's okay. But if I was starting my career in the United States, if I was starting over myself, this would be the place that I would come for all the right reasons. We have a good theater community. If you're not doing theater, you haven't considered it, do it. Work at it. It's a different, a different set of skills and, and techniques, but that's okay. You're working. You're acting. You're reacting. You're getting responses from people. So when it goes low, I'll go to theater. Or I'll travel up to Richmond. Or we used to, who used to drive to Wilmington, North Carolina, like I, back in the day? There you go. I see at least two hands raised. And, and the point is this is there was a time we would drive seven hours one way for an audition. I know I was talking to uh, uh, Claire before we started. That was routine for us. We didn't videotape back then. Those were VHS tapes. And the technologies weren't good. Transmitting them was not as good. You couldn't put that digitally into anything and then send it over the Internet that pre-existed, didn't exist at that time, rather. And um, so we made the trek, and we did it. And we lost, actually, several people in our community because it was a long and hard trek, sometimes seven hours one way and back and an audition in one day, and it's 14 hours. We lost two people on the road because they fell asleep at the wheel. They were just too exhausted, and they died. But we would go seven hours to Wilmington. We would go uh, almost seven hours again down to Orlando because Orlando was piping hot at the time. Seven hours to uh, New Orleans, 10 hours to Shreveport, eight hours to Richmond. I mean, we were kind of the geographical center of the Southeast, and that's how we sort of cut our teeth. There was no business here, so we went to the business. We found it. Mm -hmm. So I think it's premature to say, hey, I'm going to abandon ship. It may be your goal to hit New York and LA, and that's great. If you're going to do it, make sure you're a member of the union, you're ready to go, you've got a great demo, and you're ready to play because the stakes are high, the competition is fierce, and it is miles deep, Yeah. whereas here it's not. Right, yeah, and, and that's something that, I mean, I remember having these conversations you know, over this past year where it's like, I don't want to be, if I'm going to be moving somewhere else, it's sure as hell not going to be because I'm running scared from something that's happening here. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to make that because that doesn't set me up for success. If you're moving somewhere, it better be because you're ready to go and kick some ass. And there's a real reason behind that. And there's research behind that. And there's experience behind that. Well, um, and this is not to say right. we don't invest our time in protecting our environment. Sure. Other states are sure. doing it. Um, become active if you haven't already become active in our, in our culture here and help mm -hmm. us fight at the Capitol and other places. Um, there are social issues that, of course, concerning to all of us um, in, di in differing degrees. Yeah. But remember, I said we were a diverse group. We have as many people, and this is why I want to try to take the R&D, Republican and Democrat, out of the conversation. To sustain a business over the long haul is to survive the transitions of power, no matter who's in power at that time. They may be favorable to your views at any moment, and the next they are not. We, it's not a good investment for us to put all of our eggs in the one basket. And what we have to also understand, as... Um, Divisive as the heartbeat bill is, and it's one of at least nine or ten uh, that have been passed nationally so far, there are going to be more. Don't be surprised that next year you see another four or five more. But as divisive as that situation is, we have to keep in mind there are people within our community who fall to a side of the equation that you may not be on. And that is fair. It's totally, totally fair. When you stop and think that America is about split down the middle on this issue, or at least plus or minus, you know, ebb and flow of time and culture and all those things, you're never going to get a room full of people to agree with you at any given moment. Here's what I learned in my history of time working at the Capitol. No matter who you view as the enemy, the people on the other side, as you try to push your agenda, when you come up with a solution, find a solution. There's always gonna be some sort of compromise, but find a solution that allows your enemy to gracefully exit. That was the number one thing I learned in politics. 
And I'll give you the example of how that happened. Governor Perdue, in the beginning, um, one, as I said, wanted to support us in 2004, but he helped derail that legislation because he couldn't own it. He was new. If it passed, he had nothing to do with it. He wanted to take ownership of the film industry if it was successful and wanted none of the blame if it failed. He didn't know how to do that. And that's the art of politics, I'm here to tell you, um, at the very, very top. So we asked the government, after losing in 2004, to reinvigorate a long dormant group called the Governor's Film Advisory Commission. It kind of existed as political appointments did, it didn't, it was there, disappeared, it was, it was really dormant. But we said, if you had a governor's advisory board of professionals within various industries, and they recommended that a bill for the entertainment industry might be a good idea, would you accept their recommendation? Yes, he would, because there's safety in that. If it fails, it was their fault. If it wins, I can take the credit. And I went, <laughs> it's me, this is radio. I just slapped my forehead. <laughs> it wasn't a mosquito. It was an oik vault. Um, at the end, it was like, why didn't I know that? Why didn't I figure that out? There's ego in all of this, just like there is in our business. There's ego. And so I take... I take comfort in the fact that even as we fight the fight and others may not fight the heartbeat bill, I don't know. What I do know is there are varying opinions. And if one side or the other is to lose, they have to leave gracefully or it never goes away. It's not a solution. It's a temporary stopgap. And what we want is a more permanent solution. So there is no disrespect that if the bill goes through a legal process, and anytime a bill challenges the United States Constitution or state constitution, it will be sued and countersued. You do not change laws willy-nilly without some sort of act of beyond nature and it always becomes legal at the end of the day. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing because if it's a good idea, it will survive the legal recourse. If it's a bad idea, it will not. And as much as politics will try to play its hand in all of this, at the end of the day, there's the law. And we have to believe in the law. And we have to believe in the foundation of the Constitution. And if you're going to change a longstanding rule or amendment or ruling, it has to go through this process. I always wanted it to get to this point in the process because there's no amount of protesting and arguing and cheering and whatever you're going to do from the sidelines. Once it gets into the courtroom, it's about that. At least we hope it will be. And so I take comfort in that I believe, and you're going to hear from Chris Bruce, like I said earlier, this was a badly conceived bill in the state of Georgia. That doesn't mean it was a bad idea. It doesn't mean that they were trying to fight one way or another, depending on where you sit in the equation, but it was just badly put together. And so I personally believe it's not going to withstand the challenge any more than most of the states are going to survive the challenge. Does that make us bad people? Are they bad people? No, they're not. They have convictions and self-conviction. So what we have to do is give comfort to one another and going, but this is, we have to set a rule that is practical for everyone, not just a smaller segment. And the largest good may take us in one particular direction. That's why I am very hopeful in the coming years, that this will all kind of go away. Our job in the meantime is to not make it entertainment versus the state of Georgia. This is a woman's reproductive rights issue, privacy issue. It goes so much deeper than that. And that's what we should be fighting. How it became Georgia versus entertainment, I, it got co-opted, frankly. It got co-opted by a few people that wanted attention. And they didn't do us any good. The people that are going to be, that are really doing good, you're going to hear from a little bit later. Listen closely. They've got lessons. Love it. Um, so what advice now, as we're moving forward into the future and we continue to develop and grow and thrive here in Atlanta, 
in the film industry, what um, are you excited about and what would you um, give as a piece of advice to all of us who are, are sticking around? Okay. I'm excited that we're into, at least what I was familiar with when we broke this all down more than 10 years ago, we're in a 20-year cycle and we're in a, a new phase where we want to see more development of intellectual properties from our own people. You doing your own projects, producing them, releasing them. I know you're doing that very thing and doing it around the country. Here's the great thing. The perfect storm hit this industry. We've suddenly become independent, but we're depending on other people for our living. Let's not do that all the time. Let's find ways to create a living for ourselves. There are great writers here. There are great directors. There are great actors. There are great people. We don't need to be told that we can't do it. We hear that every day. I'm here to tell you, you can do it. Nobody thought we could get a tax credit and kick the ass of L.A. We did it. I have a target on my chest to prove it <laughs> whenever I go to Los Angeles. But the point is, is you, we, we're in a can-do phase, and that was always going to be phase two, the second 10 years. And so fortunately, it's coincided with the destabilization of distribution. The model that was network television or even high-end cable and a selective number of channels has gone away. It's, it's viewership on demand and streaming. It's tiny niche audiences. There's a way to make money there. It's not going to make money on the scale that it used to, but what it did is it opened up the playing field. Anybody with any kind of technology anywhere in the world can now play. L.A. hasn't figured that out yet. What is the deadliest of the seven sins? Pride. L.A. lost their business because they didn't think they could lose their business. They became stagnant. They didn't try as much. They became expensive. They were largesse, and they were waiting to be poached. And when the technology changed, they didn't embrace it. They say they did. They didn't. Now they're fighting to try to control the next generation, and they don't know how to do that. That's our new opportunity space for creatives. And you don't have to live there anymore. You might want to. That's cool. You don't have to live in New York anymore. You might want to. That's cool. Why not here? Why not you? Why not us together? We can do this. I'm here to tell you. If I can learn a jet, how to fly a jet by reading a manual and start a tax credit over 10 years and didn't know, have a clue, this is nothing. Storytelling. Where are my storytellers? As actors, we're storytellers. That's what gets me excited. And it ought to get you excited. Don't wait for the phone to ring. You pick up the phone. Tyler Perry said it great at the BET Awards because I got so tired of waiting to be invited to the Hollywood table, I built one of my own. And the hell with the rest of them. They can't stand him because he built his own fortress. God bless him. <laughs> I'm serious. It doesn't matter what you think of him. He was a genius. What he did is he created the space and he didn't take no. Don't take no. And what that means for us is invest ourselves. Invest yourself in writing courses. If you want to learn to write, you know how to act and workshop things. Table read with other people. Pick up the thing. Final draft is the easiest thing to go buy, and suddenly you're a screenwriter. It formats the whole damn thing for you. When I started writing, I was on this horrible computer, and, and I'm here to tell you, I had to learn to format with my tabs and do everything to try to copy the format in Hollywood. Now a computer program does that. That's when I was on an old Selectric or Smith Corona typewriter, and you really, you know, your fingers hurt and bled like a guitar player from typing out stuff. But that's how we did it. You commit to paper. Heck, you didn't even need a commit. Look at J.K. Rowling. She wrote everything long form by hand. Holy cow, who does that? She did. She's a billionaire, so that worked. <laughs> Her expenses, pens and pencils and paper. Probably a lot of coffee. Mm -hmm. And that was about it. Yeah. So the great news is there's hope. And you're the hope. The person who's most hopeful for you is you. The person that will tell your story for you, there's no one who does it better than you. So do that. I'm, I'm here to tell you, we can do so much and we can shatter the walls and the next thing you know, you're the new hot thing. You're trending. I mean, you, the young people in this room know better than I do. I'm old. 
now. I mean, technology is harder for me as time goes on. I have a granddaughter who's three who picks up the phone and just starts doing stuff. She's three. She deleted a couple of things she shouldn't have, but you know, outside of that, it's, it's fun. But I mean, that's how easy it is now. So be that person, be the leader, be the team. I'm trying to encourage, uh, I'm part of the Writers Guild of America. I'm trying to get, we're having a meeting um, in the next several weeks where all the uh, writers in the Southeast region who are members are gonna come together and start a collective like the old Algonquin Roundtable, where we meet and talk. We will force ourselves in the beginning, and then I think it'll sort of move along on its own steam. But if I can get out of 176 people in the Southeast that are registered to the WGA, if I can get 10 or 20 of them to meet on a regular basis, start sharing ideas, start sharing scripts. Has anyone heard of the Hollywood Blacklist mm -hmm. for scripts? Yep. Those are unpublished people, largely. People who have written for spec and haven't sold the property and they share them within their own community and they rate their own scripts. And when they go up in the ratings, you make the top 100 of the Hollywood blacklist, people's lives and careers change. What did they do? They invested in the time in the community, they wrote a script and were smart enough to share it with the community. And if you can be less self-centered than most in our industry and allow others to be successful with you, then you become part of a larger group and then you get better. So I'm trying to make that whole thing here. You may hear of it over time, so I'll evolve it here, here and now. We wanna call it the Atlanta Underground. Mm -hmm. The Underground Railroad from the Civil War came from down here. And the Atlanta Underground, when the city was burned to dust and it was a city built on a city, so what better than to find a group of underground artists waiting to surprise the world don't know what it's going to look like, but here's the caveat. You have to allow other people to be successful first, if not you, and still stay in the group. Mm -hmm. We're in. We're in as a community. So that's how we support ourselves. Actors can do the same things to make themselves better. Find groups. You're auditioning in spaces. You may have a space in your own home. You may come here to shoot mm -hmm. at, at uh, Drama Inc. I always prefer a collective of actors that can work with one another. It's always best to read with another actor because at least they're going to give you something. <laughs> it's going to come back and they have an opinion, always, which is good. And so it keeps you fresh. It keeps you on your toes. If you're not going to be in the room, then by golly, get someone who's going to keep you as if you were in the room. That's all we want to do. Be the best you can be at all times. That's hope. That is hope. And Rick, I got to tell you, I'm going to tell them this cute little story because I love it. Um, thank you for mm -hmm. being here. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and your experience and um, your advice to all of us because um, you've been doing that for me since day one. Um, That's right. Here, Rick's actually the first person I met um, before I moved here. Mm -hmm. And he kind of inspired me to make the move and, and gave a very small version of this talk that we just had. Over coffee. And she Over bought. I so did. she's buying coffee for everybody. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> but yeah, so um, yeah, so Rick was, this is this is a very full circle moment for us. But mm -hmm. um, thank you for being here and thank you for everything that you have done and continue to do for our community. It's my pleasure. And how can all of our listeners and everyone here um, follow along with you, get connected with you online, or check out any of your projects that are coming out soon? Uh, well, you know, everybody has a website. So it's uh, Rick Writes. I just spell it R-I-C-R-E-I-T-Z.com. So that's where I kind of post the, the stuff. You know, we all have Facebook pages. Twitter seems to be dying. Am I right? Is Twitter kind of dying? It's all kind of Instagramming. Now I'm seeing a head shake. No, yes, no. Yes, no. And then there'll be something else that evaporates in like five seconds after you read it. Um, you know, it's all the normal stuff. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, find me. Um, I don't tend to do as much broadcasting on those channels as younger people do. Um, that's part of the problem with the older generation. No. I mean, I'm in I'm in that environment, but I don't I don't live in it 100. percent I was gonna say no one has ever responded to an email faster than you, though. I do respond. I think that's respectful. By the way, that's another trick: is respond. They're people. When somebody asks you a question and you don't have a lot of time, the busiest person in the room will find time. So find the busiest person in the room and they'll <laughs> give you an answer. But it's respectful to respond to somebody else. Even if it means I'm a little busy right now, can I get back to you later? Or I've got something coming up. Can we hook up at another time? 
here, give me a call back in 30 days. I think I had to do that with you once because I was yeah. in the midst of doing some production and it worked out. You were coming to Atlanta and I was, I was available. Yeah. So um, reach down and lift other people up. I didn't have that when I was coming up. You can do that. I love it. Thank you so much, Rick. Woo! Oh, yeah. All right. I don't know about you guys, but Rick is such a powerhouse and so inspirational. Um, I know many people don't realize just how many barriers and hurdles we have had to overcome as an industry in Georgia. And hearing that story, every time I hear it, I just feel such a sense of pride for our market and our community um, and the many, many wonderful and inspiring and hardworking people we have um, in our Atlanta market. People like Rick who have really fought hard to create the market that we know and love today and that we all who are, who are currently working in it can benefit from. So I hope you guys enjoyed learning um, from Rick, and I hope that you walk away from this episode feeling a renewed sense of purpose and inspiration and hopefully have some new ideas uh, moving forward in your careers. And I hope that you have some practical things that you can apply. Um, I know I do. And every time I talk to Rick, I feel like I walk away with uh, some new piece of knowledge uh, and motivation to push me through. So that is all that we have today. I hope you guys love the episode. I would love to hear your feedback if you came to the event or just on this episode in particular. You can connect with us over on Instagram at It's a Slate of Mind or on my personal account at Allison underscore Hazelden. Uh, you can also comment on one of the listening platforms. You can give us some stars and you could share this episode with a friend who you think might benefit from it. Because at the end of the day, that's what we're all about is community and lifting each other up as actors. So that is all for me today. I hope you guys have a kick-ass week and I will catch you next week. I'm actually going to fix that ending. So that is all for today, guys. Thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you on the next one. Well, friends, that's it for this week's episode of It's a Slate of Mind. I'm Allison Hazelden and thank you for joining us. See you next time.